Polly, honey, our hearts are out to you. Baby, if you can hear me, you know how much we love you. I feel you inside of me and I'm trying to find you. I'm doing everything. Everybody's working very hard. And whoever has her, I beg you, I beg you with all my heart that you keep her and bring her home to her mother and father. You keep her safe, I beg you. She hasn't ever hurted anyone in her life. She's a happy girl. I beg you not to hurt her. Disclaimer, in this story we will be discussing the murder of a 10-year-old girl. This chapter may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. It's October 1st. <laughs> it's October 1st, yeah. It's Wake up. Season. It's the first of the month. You don't know that? No. TikTok. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I guess we should probably just get into it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Holly Jones was born on September 14th, 1992. She's the youngest of a family of four children to parents Maria and George. Holly went to St. Luigi Catholic School, and she was very social with lots of friends and lots of dreams, one of which was to form her own rock band one day with her friends. She'd already chosen the name of the band to be the Evil Angels. How know? old was she? She was 10. 10. I guess I thought she, like, she was 14 or something, maybe because of September 14th. Hmm. And then I was thinking, by then, you're a teenager... And then if you're naming, if you're like, I'm going to have a band one day and it's going to be called Evil Angels, right after that, I wouldn't be like, what a nice girl. Well, she's a 10-year-old little girl. But you weren't being satire. You were being legit, I guess. Yeah, she's, I don't know. I don't know. She's playing. She's just playing. She wanted to be rock and roll. I get it now. And these little girls, you know, they don't know good and evil and all that stuff. And I'm not familiar with this story. So, like... When it comes down to it, these stories can go either way. It could be like this 10-year-old girl met a boy online and then together they decided to murder their family. Or it can be this 10-year-old girl gets murdered. Like, I don't have a clue. So I I wasn't picking up what you were putting down. Okay. But now I'm ready. All right. So on May the 12th, 2003, 10-year-old Holly Jones decided to walk her friend Claudia home after their play date. Holly's mom didn't want her to go at first, wondering why it was Holly's responsibility to walk her friend home, to which Holly kind of snapped back at her and said, well, mom, she's only in grade four. I have to. Which, I mean, I've been in that position too, where why do you have to go and do this? And the reasoning being because you're the older kid and it's just your sense of responsibility that maybe parents don't automatically think of but no i that's actually really fascinating Mm because i feel like usually it's like the kid being like why do i have to walk her home like Mm. i don't want to do that but it's very interesting that the parent was like why are you going to do that yeah at around 6 p.m the two girls left holly jones's house and walked down the street to claudia's house oblivious to the fact that this would be the last time they'd be together So when Holly didn't return home by 8 p.m., her mom, Maria, decided to call Holly's friend's mother. 
Upon being informed that Holly had left the house hours ago, Maria and her husband George became panicked. They went out and they walked the route Holly would have taken, which took no more than 10 minutes each way. By 9 p.m., the parents had called the police to report Holly's disappearance, and the police and the community launched a full-blown search for the missing 10-year-old. This is before the Tory Stafford case. Uh, the police did issue an Amber Alert here for Holly, even though both children simply vanished. Anyways, back to Holly's story. So the police quickly ruled out any family members in connection with Holly's disappearance. The 11th Division officers were called in and they commenced a missing persons um, search knowing that it was a child abduction. Everything that can happen is going to happen within a few hours and the child can still be in the area where he or she disappeared. So just her, so just her was missing, not the kid she was walking? Right, just Holly. So the girl got the little girl got home okay. On the way back, she got abducted. On the way back, something happened. Yeah. Something happened. Yeah. Okay. So they went right away to what's called a level three search that same night. They immediately had police officers interviewing family members, um, interviewing the last people who saw her, which was her little friend and her friend's mom. So the next day, on the morning of May 13th, 2003, the police still hadn't found Holly. They launched the Amber Alert. Um, it's a huge... In 2003? Yeah. An Amber Alert in 2003? Yeah. Yeah, it was the first ever in Canadian history. Oh. That's why I was saying in the Tory Stafford case, like, <clears throat> they had already had this precedent, and they had less to go on here than they did in Tory's case years later i just i don't understand why the amber alert wasn't issued in tory's case but it was issued here word and i'd also like to say they didn't have surveillance video of holly or anything like that so totally different set of circumstances mm -hmm. but the police jumped on this one whereas tory's not so much which is a huge operation and a first in canada Photos of Holly are posted everywhere. After a panic-filled sleepless night, Holly's parents addressed the public. And this is what we heard in the opening of this episode. Yeah, that was sad. So obviously investigators believe that Holly was abducted between her house on Sterling Street and her friend's house on Perth Avenue. And they were almost certain that she's still in Junction Triangle, which is the, what the area is known as. So the investigators had a starting point where they could start searching for her. They really believed that they would find Holly alive. Dozens and dozens of officers were dispatched from all over the city and had come to the command post to help search for Holly, searching door-to-door, -door, going into garages, into backyards, uh, searching ravines, garbage, um, just making sure that they didn't miss anything. High and low, low and high. Mm-hmm. Shortly after Maria Jones appeared on television, the Toronto Naval Patrol received a call from a resident of Ward Island, directly across from Toronto, along the shore of Lake Ontario. The man had spotted a black sports bag floating in the water, and he opened it to discover human body parts. Gasp. We would later learn that there was a young girl's torso that had been found floating in a black nylon bag in Lake Ontario over by Ward Island. 
Law enforcement sent a team of divers to keep searching, trying to find the smallest clue to move the case forward. And later that afternoon, a police officer saw another bag floating near Lake or Ontario Place and took that bag directly to the Marine unit where a coroner had been called in to assist them with examining the bag. It contained more of Holly's remains. Um, it had her head and her arms inside, and it was weighed down with a dumbbell and a used mop head. The missing person rescue type operation turned into a full-blown homicide investigation. Okay. So the focus very quickly turned from searching for a little girl to searching for a killer. The Toronto Sex Crimes Unit immediately began sifting through the Ontario Registry of Sexual Predators living in Holly's neighborhood. Why? Well, Why sexual predators? Well, because it was a little girl and she was dismembered. I mean, history shows that if it's not the parents or a close family member, usually it's Could a they sex tell crime. that there was sexual abuse or assault, though? I think because the body was naked, um, they assumed so. And right. it's just the kind of the, you can't say the first stop, because the first stop is always the family, but then they look for the sexual offender registry see who's in the area, see what kind of opportunity. You know, instant direction, my brain's going here. Where are her legs? Spoiler alert, they never find her legs. Never. Never. Odd. So they were stunned, actually, to discover over 200 names on that sexual offender registry living right in that same neighborhood. Of course, word spreads like wildfire, so now everyone in the neighborhood is scared, but everyone is also outraged. How can that many sexual predators be living around schools and children and no one, not even the sex crimes investigators, knew? Well, because... Wow. I mean, you throw rocks and you hit at least a few. Yeah. They're everywhere. I mean, it wasn't new back then, I guess, but the sex offender registry was yeah. new back then. Amber Alert was new back then. So, so like, it was you'd all be just... shocked that, like, you can see it now. But, like, in reality, these days, we all know mm -hmm. how common it is. Yeah. Yeah, but back 20 years ago. People or... were turning blind eyes and stuff still. So what police knew about sexual predators is that they're hunters of human beings and they usually hunt in their own neighborhoods. So the investigators were still confident that whoever had done this to Holly most certainly lived in the area, if not right on the route that Holly walked home that evening. From that would make sense. Yeah. From Holly's body, the medical examiner was able to find an unknown male's DNA under Holly's fingernails, meaning that she fought her attacker. They also found green fibers from a bath mat and also a dumbbell, like I said before, so they had some clues and evidence to work with, but it was going to be like finding a needle in a haystack. Police officers toiled nonstop on the investigation. They had to search 2,500 homes to flush out the killer. They decided to ask for voluntary DNA swabs from every male in that neighborhood. Every male or every male that showed up on that list? Every male. Every male. That's hilarious because you wouldn't think that the perp would come forward to do that that is very astute of you so like why waste the money They're trying to flush the guy out 
So most people want to cooperate. They're clearly advised of the rights and the police are giving out a waiver form for them to sign explaining how the whole process works, including the fact that the test will only be measured against the DNA of this particular case. And then it'll be thrown in the garbage. Absolutely confidential. We're not putting it on a database, nothing. We're just going to try to match it to our DNA. And if it doesn't match, that's the end of it. And they sign a waiver and most people are willing to cooperate. I'd like, I'd carry out the plan, but budget friendly, I'd use fake Q-tips. Well, they didn't and they, they, they did this. Yeah. And then they didn't keep it for possible future they didn't that's in my opinion stupid whatever though what if his great great grandson one day is a fucking serial killer well they were trying to get the public to cooperate right yeah no totally it's short-sighted but totally honestly i get it so like i said 99 percent of the adult males along that route readily agreed and said anything we can do to help solve this case we're happy to do it i think there were three men in total that didn't give voluntary samples sus however during the canvas officers were asked to take note of homes that they were inside of with a short list of things to look for like the green carpeting or bath mats weight sets the behavior those types of things when police went to Michael Breer's apartment, they noticed a strong smell of bleach and cleaner from even outside of the apartment, even stronger still once they entered. They also took note of a green bath mat set in his apartment and a dumbbell set inside the door of his bedroom area. So he's stupid. Breer refused to give DNA and so the officers left that day. So faced with that obstacle, the police change tactics. They drop a profile for the murderer and shrink down to what they thought were 468 persons of interest in the case. And they were able to prioritize who they needed to look at further down to only 19 persons of interest. And out of that 19, they narrowed it down to only three people, which Michael Breer was among those three prime suspects. That is when police decide to visit him again. They knocked on his door and with no luck, they just decided to look for the owner of the rental property when they spot a man sneaking out of the building through the back door. Lo and behold, it's Michael Breer. Don't be suspicious. Right? Sneaking. Investigators asked if they could step inside of his apartment to have a quick conversation, to which Michael agreed. While inside, one of the investigators had a look around, and one of the first things he noticed was that there was a brand new shower curtain sitting on his kitchen table, still in the package. And when they looked inside of his washroom, there were no shower curtains at at all, and there were no green bath mats, uh, which the original canvassing officers had noted, and now they were beige bath mats laying there. They also saw children's toys in his apartment. The officers asked about his initial refusal to provide DNA, and Michael responds by saying that he doesn't like Big Brother watching him, which I think we all know people that are like that. I'm surprised so many people came forward and said, yeah, sure, take my DNA because of how many people we know. Yeah. Nevertheless, he says that he hopes the police catch the guy who committed the crime soon. 
The two investigators ask Michael to come down to the station, which he agrees. In fact, he seems eager to help. Audio and video have not been publicly released showing any of Michael's interrogations, but police say that they were looking for signs of deception, looking for behaviors that could be indicative of somebody who's guilty. Another huge red flag was when he was asked what was the color of the bath mats in your home, and he replied that they were black, and police obviously knew that was a lie. So Michael Breer was 35. He worked at a pharmaceutical company as a computer programmer. He's a medium height and weighs 90 kg. He's, I don't know, chubby and quiet, I guess. He doesn't attract much attention, but honestly, he's scary and homely. I mean, when I look at him, he looked scary and homely. What's homely? Ugly. Not attractive. Not somebody that could just strike up a conversation with some kid or a woman and the woman would be like, you know, receptive to. Was he short and stout? Yes. Gotcha. Um, But he was born in the Rosemont district of Montreal and is the result of an affair that his mother had with a married man who never acknowledged him. So he was solely raised by his alcoholic mother. Michael's paychecks kept her going in cigarettes and alcohol. His ex-wife would later say, quote, He was the first person I really met who had told me that he was abused at every single level of his being and without giving you examples because I'm telling you they would leave you screaming, unquote. And honestly, don't we all? Boo-hoo. Uh, The fact that Michael Breer lived with a completely dysfunctional alcoholic mother certainly did not help in forming a good stable identity and a strong sense of self, um, but a lot of people go through shit and don't become this. Yeah. His self-esteem was very poor and he hated himself. Same, good. Um, (laughs) Michael had dreams of becoming an actor, but he knew he wasn't very attractive. So to improve his chances of success, apparently he had plastic surgery and he changed his name and moved to Toronto. Now, and like I said before, if that, if what we see is his post-plastic surgery self. What's his name again? Michael Breer. B-R-I-E-R-E. Michael. I don't know. I mean, what, what work did you have done, buddy? Because it didn't work. B-R-I? B-R-I-E-R-E. Okay. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? Like, there's no way he had... Maybe. I don't know. Who knows what he looked like before, but... That's what he looks like now. I wonder what his, like, version of plastic surgery is. And maybe he got Botox. He's pretty chunky in the cheeks did he get his moobs reduced you know what i mean like i i don't see it but that's funny um so he deletes the michael Brier or sorry michelle Brier of yesteryear and makes himself over into a new man um not only with a new personality but with brand new looks and when he moved to toronto michael Brier enrolls in theater school and that's where he met vicky his now ex-wife um, a year into dating, they got married in Las Vegas, and Vicky said in an interview, quote, 
we've had a lot of the same interests and a lot of the same goals and it was like wow my prayers were answered and god sent me this wonderful man but the relationship begins to unravel when vicky discovers certain aspects of michael that she didn't like like his addiction to video games to his nose ears and jaw which is pretty interesting because i was gonna say like I could kind of see maybe he had, like, something done to his jaw to make it a little less round and stand out more because, like, he looks so filled out. But then for some reason, his jaw still shows. Maybe jaw filler or something like that. Oh, really? I didn't. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see it. I just see a slug. I'd love to see, pictures. like, an original photo. I wonder yeah. if he was just right fucked up. <laughs> Well, like I said, if that's fixing stuff, then yeah. he must have been, for sure. Like I said, his wife Vicky discovers certain certain things that she didn't like about Michael, like his addiction to video games, and this is what he was doing in his spare time, just playing video games. And Michael was compulsively isolating completely from the world around him, including his wife. He would play video games and ignore his wife for at least 40 hours a week. So... 40 hours a week 40 hours a week so so he would work full-time and basically play video games full-time you got no time for your wife you're just isolated completely from everything so in no time they, and back then like what was he playing yeah I don't, for that long <laughs> he gets a divorce yeah i don't, I don't like know. 2003 mm-hmm. i feel like there was like Diablo. nothing Probably, was that there? Yeah, maybe like Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, and I could see that. Like that. Yeah, I could, yeah, word. Me too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he was a computer programmer, so I'm sure, like for me, the video games would be on what would would have been PlayStation or something back then, right? That's what I was thinking too. Yeah, but if you could have been on Lame. the computer, <laughs> like I don't really remember much of 2003. It was a little bit. 20 years ago so you were yeah yeah no we had like sega genesis and stuff like that and you were quite young so i mean i mean it all existed it's not like atari days where you had cassettes back in the 80s and you'd play a game for an hour and get bored yeah i was thinking like nintendo 60 (laughs) something yeah no this is well after that oh okay um, so now, almost 40 days after Holly Jones' death, Michael Briere is called back in by detectives and he swears he has nothing to do with the crime but keeps refusing to supply DNA. And still not having enough to arrest him, police must release Michael, but investigators kept Michael Briere under constant surveillance. He was careful not to dispose of much garbage at all, but eventually he did. He discarded a soda can that he just finished the police took it as evidence and the dna matched that which was found under holly's fingernails investigators wanted to be sure so they were able to get a second sample after witnessing michael throwing away a drink cup after eating fast food with his then girlfriend that dna was a match as well just curious can they do that legally once it's in the garbage it's public domain so they need to have yeah, they need to show... They didn't need a warrant to take no, his garbage? No, because it's public domain once you put it in the garbage. But they have to show that it came from him, that the discarded sample came from 
him. How would they so, show that? Um, police surveillance video or pictures or, you know what I mean? Like 24 was, hours showing that nobody else yeah, went in the house. Or showing or him drinking from the cup, showing mm-hmm. him beside the garbage can, putting it in, mm-hmm. and then showing the police going right over type thing. Just some kind of continuity, do you know what I mean? Yeah, word. Same thing right now is going on with the Long Island serial killer because they... The pizza box? The pizza box, right. right. Like, Did you see the Howard Stern thing? I did not. You didn't? No. Okay, so like forever ago, Howard Stern on his podcast, when talking about the the case, he was like, I bet you one day it's, he was like, no, it's going to be one guy. He was like, it's probably from like Long Island and probably going to get like DNA, like through like a pizza box or something. I shit you not. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, they had to go, obviously they, once they had that DNA and they matched it to Rex Hureman or whatever, he discarded that pizza. Now they have to prove that that DNA belonged to Rex Hureman because who knows who actually ate the pizza, right? Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me, I'm going to play it. For the pod? Yeah. Because like, yo, listeners, you're going to want to hear this. It's weird. During the summer, they're now saying they think one killer is responsible for all those bodies found in the Gilgo Beach area. Ten sets of human remains have been discovered since December of last year, and only five have been identified so far. They found them on the beach, a lot of them, right? Yeah, a lot of them in the sand. Right. In dunes. But, uh, yeah, I wonder if they're getting close to this guy. Is he feeling the heat? Is it just a matter of time? We don't know. I don't think uh, it's going to be a, a like a group of people like you just said. I think with, when they find this, I think it's going to be one guy. Uh-huh. Probably from Long Island, like National People Park or something. <laughs> And I think it'll come down to DNA. You know what I mean? Yeah. They get it from like That's a body right. and then they match it to some guy eating a pizza or a pizza box or something like what? that. But it's probably one guy and he's got a dark side. Real unassuming guy. Probably has a white collar job. Mm-hmm. Probably like an architect or a, <laughs> oh, I don't really? know, like, like, you know, like a, like a good job. And Isn't that fucking weird? Because he did live in Massapequa Park. He <laughs> was caught by way of pizza box DNA. And he was an architect. And the fact that he even narrowed it down to Long Island. Like, I've, I think that that's suspicious and they should be questioning Howard Stern. I think that Howard Stern, I think he is either a demon who sold his soul years and years and years ago. <laughs> because he's a fucking asshole too. <laughs> I think he's a demon or I think he's like possessed or like some kind of shit. And he just spelled out who the Long Island serial killer was. Yeah. How many years ago? I think he's a demon who's like toying with us. They need to talk to him. They need (laughs) to investigate him as a possible accomplice or something. Creepy though, right? That's ridiculously creepy. Yeah. It's fucked. So, okay. (laughs) So the second discarded sample was a DNA match to Michael Breyer. And at that point, when they had that second one... They knew for sure that Michael was responsible for the abduction, sexual assault, and murder of Holly Jones. So on June 20th at 5.40 a.m., detectives Cuomo and Perry waited for Briere at the entrance to a subway station near his home. He was arrested and taken to the police station. Meanwhile, a forensic team goes through Briere's apartment looking for proof that Holly had been there. Although Michael swears he's innocent, the police interrogate him relentlessly on the presence of his DNA under Holly Jones's fingernails. They bombard him with questions which he refuses to answer. 
Then one of the officers mentions the little girl's legs, the only body parts that hadn't been found. Finally, Michael cracks. He told investigators that they would never be found. What the fuck? hmm, He had disposed of them in the garbage almost immediately and that those legs had been taken to a garbage disposal site in Michigan. So it would have been virtually impossible to recover her legs because they would have been buried under tons and tons of garbage. So there's just legs somewhere there. Not Imagine anymore. What? Not anymore, obviously. They're probably dust now, but yeah. No, there would still be bones, wouldn't there? Maybe. Yeah, just like knowing that, like whoever works there, they're mm-hmm. like a new hire comes in there, like there's, there's human remains. Yeah. That's creepy. But I think it's pretty... Fucked up? It is, but at the same time, I think there's a possibility that human remains are in every dump. And they're every major possible, city. but that's just the confirmation. Yeah, and in the spirit of Halloween, that is spoopy as fuck. True enough. Very, very true. And I mean, how sad. So, Michael confesses over three long hours without showing a hint of remorse. He gives a detailed account of the kidnapping, rape, murder, and dismemberment of Holly. That Monday, May twelfth, two thousand and three, shortly after supper. Michael received the overpowering urge to have sex with a child after spending the entire day drinking and downloading child pornography. Oh, gross. He leaves his apartment and walks to the corner of Perth and Bloor, and Holly was walking down Perth Street. He sees her. He's never laid eyes on her before, and it is by pure horrific chance that Holly never suspected a thing. Michael moved in. He checked around to make sure that nobody was looking, grabs her firmly at the back of her neck and tells her if she screams or fights, he will kill her. Holly did as she was told. She stayed quiet. Once inside his apartment, Michael attempted to rape Holly and she was assaulted in numerous ways, but she had fought back hard. Less than a half an hour later, he strangled Holly barehanded. He panicked over what to do with her body, so he decided to hide her in his fridge. He doesn't want the smell of rot to tip neighbors off, and at one point, after he thought that she was dead and she was in his fridge, he heard a a boom, 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 a knocking. It was her fighting to get out of the fridge, so he took her out and took her to his bed and strangled her again. Once he was certain this time that she was dead, she went back into the refrigerator. So picture this. So That's fucked. He, he killed her, or he thinks he killed he her. He thinks he killed her, put her he in the fridge. He takes everything out of the fridge, fr- uh, like shelves and all, puts the body in there, and then a little while later, hears this thump, thump, thump. Yeah. Like, how horrific. And poor Holly waking up in that fridge, thinking, mm-hmm. oh my God. That's so sad. So in his mind now, Michael has no choice but to get rid of the body. He begins by disposing of the little girl's clothing. He takes them by subway to a large garbage containers behind a shopping mall. Then he comes home, grabs the sports bag, and realizes that the girl's body is too big to fit inside. This is when he decides to dismember her with a hacksaw. 
Once this horrible task is done, Michael cleans his apartment with a mop and rags, and these are the same ones later found by the police in the same bags as Holly's remains. Over the next few days, he gets rid of all the other incriminating evidence, including the hacksaw, uh, which he throws in a downtown garbage can. He disposes of the torso first, which is stuffed into a sports bag and thrown into Lake Ontario in the middle of the night. And back at home, he lies down in the very bed that he strangled Holly in. And when he gets up the next morning, an Amber Alert had been launched. All of Toronto is searching for Holly, and Michael knows he has to hurry to get rid of the rest of her body. He doesn't want to throw the second bag where he'd thrown the first, so he goes further along the shoreline. On June 20th, 2003, after his confession, Michael led the police to the places where he went to dispose of all of the evidence. They find traces of blood on the mattress with DNA profiles similar to that of Holly Jones. The margin of error is 1 in 68 billion, so clearly it's Holly's. Um, During his interrogation, Michael admits his dark secret, as he calls it, to a detective. Um, He says that for years he's fantasized about having sex with a little girl and that he basically had decided to act that day. Even if Holly hadn't been there, he had known he was taking the first young girl he saw when he left his apartment that evening. Wow. So there was a mirror, a full-length mirror on Bear's front door. And when one of the investigators saw that mirror, his heart sank because he thought to himself, this is the last time that this child saw herself. Her own reflection was in that mirror as she was led in to be sexually assaulted and murdered. Um, The terror on her face must have been just unbelievable. To this day, the detective, I mean, I think everybody wishes Holly had screamed for help on the street because he said that had Holly screamed or fought, he wouldn't have. No, they're cowards. They're like the, they're the biggest cowards. So he would have ran away as fast as he could, obviously, but you know, as a kid, you don't know that an adult tells you do this or this. You trust that. Yeah. You know what I mean? One of the officers said, I recall him saying to the officers that had she screamed, I would have let her go. Tell parents to tell their kids if they're abducted to scream because he would have let her go. Police would later learn that Briere took the subway to the lake carrying Holly's remains He took them to the lake to dispose of them and would likely have gotten away with the murder um, if water currents had just carried the remains past the island into the lake. It was a DNA case without DNA. It might not have been solved. And I, I mean, I totally believe that good for Holly for fighting back so hard. She had his DNA under her nails. Yeah, no kidding. So Briere pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, but addressed the court and Holly's family before sentencing, saying, The crime I am guilty of is simply the worst kind of crime a person could commit. What I did was absolutely wrong. It was done out of selfishness. It was the act of a coward. I accept the sentence which you are about to give me. No one who has stood in front of you has been more deserving of such a sentence. I stand by my words when I told the police... A man who commits these crimes, you put away and you put away for good. Oh, my God. Like, I hate 
I hate when these monsters go off and like do these little things because like you know it's feeding some little sick twisted like like thing with them. It's like, shut up. We don't care if you accept the sentence. We'd prefer that you fight it, honestly, and just keep your stupid hopes up and talk about how you're, you don't deserve this and blah, 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 blah. Let it eat you alive. Yeah. We don't <clears throat> care if you agree, get pushed into the cell and get locked away forever. Also... I just want to add for the listeners that if you can hear in the backtrack while we are talking tools and stuff, there is lots of construction going on on our street and there's nothing we can do about it. So sorry. (laughs) So Michael goes on to say, I take no pride in what I have done. The truth is I'm ashamed beyond belief. I regret everything. I am really sorry. I really wish I could undo everything. I have failed as a human being. And to that, the detectives basically say, don't believe it. He's only sorry he got caught. So no shit. No shit, yeah. You're not a human being, period, you dumbass. Yeah. So Michael Michael Briere was handed an automatic life sentence with no chance of a parole for 25 years. Um, I believe that Michael Briere has been deemed a dangerous offender. So even when he does become eligible for parole, he's not going to get out. He has to lose that dangerous offender designation before he'll be eligible. It's disgusting that there's even a possibility, though. Mm -hmm. That's just how our system works, though. There's no such thing as no parole in Canada. None. Whether or not the parole board board lets you out, that's another story, but... Well, actually, I also, in the future here, we will be talking about, um, like, a different case where... This predator got out of jail in his lifetime to be able to commit more murders Mm -hmm. after killing two young children. Talking about Arthur Shawcross. Yes. He's a brutal, brutal man for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Crazy. Like, it makes no sense that these people were able to get out so quickly back then. And it's not that we're learning the lesson. Like that thing with Arthur Shawcross happened a long time ago and he served a sentence and was let out to go and kill more people. Yeah. We keep doing it though and yeah, we're we still doing it. We're not out. learning that lesson it's as weird. a society. I you mean, take somebody's life, your life should be done. You should be locked yeah. behind bars. How You've many judges have we heard you have forfeited your right to life or you forfeited your right to live in a society? Right? The only society you get now is your prison life. Happy 23-hour-a-day lockdown. You know what I mean? Yeah, and these ones that, like, like have the possibility to see uh, freedom again in their lifetimes. Like, like, if you have to, like, create a secondary facility that mm-hmm. still keeps them locked down away from people where they don't get treated quite as harshly. Mm-hmm. Like, if that's what they're thing is but like honestly they don't even deserve that all i'm saying is they don't have the right to ever be part of society again the second they take a life especially when it's just for their own shits and giggles like agreed yeah so as for holly's heartbroken mom she's poured her energy into strengthening strengthening laws on children Uh, she wants to make sure that her daughter's death was not in vain Um, so no one will ever forget holly jones 
But despite all of the measures in place now for tracking pedophiles, um, or I should say sex offenders, because there are, there's this new movement, MAPS, Minor Attracted People, that are non-offending pedophiles, so, you know, quote unquote, they've never they've never assaulted anybody or they've never touched a child, but they, they're they still... They have the sickness. Yeah, they're, they're still attracted to minors. Um, but so we're, we're tracking sex offenders. We're tracking these uh, pred- predators, but it's still, it's still happening. So, I mean, I'm not convinced that anything that the government does or laws change, nothing is going to stop this kind of thing from happening. It's It goes so much deeper than that. It starts at home with the childhood, how these guys are raised, and some women, how they're raised. Look at Terry Lynn McClintic. Um, but yeah, I'm not convinced that that this kind of thing will ever stop happening. So we need to, I guess, teach, teach our kids personal safety. It's such a sad fucking state. Just got to, like, I don't know, protect the kids better Mm -hmm. you know no bringing weirdos in Mm -hmm. but this i mean holly's parents did nothing wrong going the extra mile and walking with your kid if she feels like she needs to walk a kid home for safety or driving the kid home yeah something Something. yeah driving and that's what you see a lot nowadays actually is parents are a little bit more willing to drive their kids a to b when they ask and stuff like that well unfortunately it takes this kind of thing that kind of not opens parents' eyes, but makes us more vigilant and more like, oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God, that just happened right over here. We have to be careful. Yeah, because, like, and back in the day, it would just be like, no, you want to go somewhere? Walk. Yeah. Oh, what's that? You want to do this? No, I can't pick you up. I'm watching a movie. Like, it wasn't... Nowadays, it's literally like, okay, I'll pick you guys up. Mm-hmm. Text me. Call me when you want me to pick you pick you up. Mm-hmm. You see it way more often now. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's good, though. Yeah. It's not making your kids lazy. It's just making sure that they're getting safely A to B. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of weirdos. A lot of weirdos out there. Mm-hmm. So for years and years and years, they had a kind of a memorial wall mm-hmm. up on um, the street. I've, I heard that they had to knock it down. I'm not sure if it's still there or not. Oh, but anyways, there's Holly's garden. Um, her mom... Um, like I said, she does she does a lot of advocacy. Um, so I don't know. You can go to the Holly Jones website and see pictures of her and pictures of that memorial wall in the garden and everything, and it's really beautiful. And this case just really stuck stuck with me over the years because it was a Canadian case. Um, 2003, we had just moved to a small town um, because of scary things that started to happen in the city when I would let you and your sister go to the park and you were probably too young but your sister wasn't and there was a man and he was a mentally disabled man but he was scaring you guys and so it got to the point where we couldn't let you even go to the park in our little complex anymore no, um, I remember lots of like weird things happening. Yeah, going and to I was the police young, young. and saying that unless he touches them, there's nothing we can do. And the guy I was on like, the bike. Yeah, that's actually what pushed me over the edge to agree to move to where we are now. That situation. And like I remember that, and I would have been young, mm-hmm. young, young as well. Yeah, it sticks with you. It does. 
and how scary and, mm. and you can't even call the police we did we called the police and they said well you know he's not doing any harm and unless he lays a hand on one of your kids there's nothing we can do about it I'm thinking really so he has to do something before you can help my children so yeah. I guess my children will lose out and they won't be able to go to the park in our area in our complex anymore because mm -hmm. he has to do something first that I mean it's just wrong anyways Anyways, rest easy, Holly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow. You can also find us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram at True Crime Story Podcast, where the discussion can continue. If you wish to contact us, you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. Remember to send in your podcast episodes, case suggestions, or requests. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. I'm Bree. And I'm sure. And we'll see you in the next chapter. Bye.